Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you for listening to this Heritage Foundation event. Every day, the Heritage Foundation holds important events with respected and influential leaders and policy experts on today's most important issues. Our events are part of our mission to formulate and promote conservative public policies based on the principles of free enterprise, limited government, individual freedom, traditional American values, and strong national defense. We hope you enjoy the program. Welcome to the Heritage Foundation. I am Jim Carafano. I oversee foreign and security uh, policy here at the Heritage Foundation. Today we're going to talk about an issue that has long been close to my heart, uh, immigration and border security. I, I actually started at Heritage as the first Homeland Security analyst when we created the Department of Homeland Security, so I've been living the dream a long time here. Um, this is a great panel today to talk about really cutting edge and exciting research. So you would have thought after debating this thing for now almost two decades, that everything that could be said, every idea, every creative innovation, every new had already been put on. And you would be wrong because um, what we have here today is new research, new ideas. And I think it's really exciting that in a time in which basically we have just people screaming at each other and just shouting the same thing over and over again, that you actually have people say, let's put the politics aside. Let's look at what the data says. And let's think about how that informs way forward. Maybe it's not right, it's not left, it's not liberal, it's conservative. It's kind of common sense. And so uh, last year, Heritage released a, a major report, uh, immigration reform and uh, border security reform. I, uh, I commend the report to you. It's online at heritage.org. I think it's not just something that all conservatives could embrace, but I think 80% of Americans, if you ripped off the cover and didn't tell them who published it or where it came from, and just put it in front of them, they would say, I could, I could live it. This might not be everything I want, but everything in here is kind of what we need. And so in that spirit of kind of what are good nonpartisan ideas that can inform this debate, um, we've got a great panel here today. I'm going to turn it over to them. Uh, I'm going to let them launch in. And I'm assuming that after you guys are going to talk for a bit, and then you're going to be open to Q&A. Is that fair? Okay. And so when we move to um, the question and answer period, I would ask if you have a question, if you would wait uh, to get identified, wait for the microphone, and then if you would just state your name and affiliation, because we're all also broadcasting this live online, that people can hear your question uh, and and hear who you are. That would uh, be great. Um, I'm mostly excited about this panel because of who we're partnering with. If you are not familiar with the Texas Public Policy Foundation, then you are wrong. It is one of the the leading state. Well, it is the leading state think tank in America. Um, we have been talking together about these issues for a long time. We bring together Heritage, which I think really brings a national and global perspective, and TPPF, which is unquestionably one of the, the, uh, the real engines of thought about looking at it from a formation of, you know, from a federalist perspective of what can states and what should states do. And Texas is remarkable because it has one face that's uh, obviously facing the U.S.-Mexico border and another face that's facing the rest of the country. So they think about this issue not just as a border state, but also as a state ha that has to deal with the consequences of these issues. So to have uh, Representative Hosteller here uh, to, to help address this issue is, is, um, is uh, terrific. So he's going to talk about recent research from the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Then uh, Hans von Spakowski and Cully Simpson from Heritage, who work in our legal center, I'm going to talk about some innovative research that they've recently done on uh, what, what can be done to inform immigration courts. Um, both Hans and Kali have also worked on really the breadth of our, our research in this area. Uh, so covering kind of all aspects of legal uh, immigration reform and, and enforcement on the border uh, and in, in the interior. So I'm sure they'd be happy to, to broaden the discussion, to, to talk about issues you guys are interested in. So I think we're in for a really exciting, informing, and engaging period. Um, so who's going to go first? John, our guest? Is our guest going to oh, go first? Guest. Okay, so I'm going to turn over to John and, uh, and kick it off, and then we're all good to go. So then please uh, join with me in welcoming our panel. Thank you, Jim. Uh, my name is John Hostetler. I'm with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. I am Vice President for Federal Affairs 
for States Trust, a, a new initiative of the Texas Public Policy Foundation to bring state-based solutions uh, to Washington, D.C. and to the federal government. Uh, you know, uh, as we delve into this issue of border security, it's important to get context for that. Uh, shortly before he signed into law the Immigration Reform and Control Act of 1986, IRCA 1986, as it's referred to in this acronym uh, city, um, President Reagan said that, uh, that the result of enacting this piece of legislation would be uh, finally uh, delivering to the United States, to the people of the United States, a secure border uh, that would protect uh, the greatest civil uh, possession that every American possesses, and that is American citizenship. Um, well, since 1986 to today, a secure border has been elusive, uh, to say the least, uh, not without some work being done in Congress to attempt, uh, uh, in some measures, to secure that border. Uh, but given the fact that in May, earlier this year, uh, apprehensions along the southern border eclipsed 140,000 in one month, uh, there is much work to do in securing the border. And the Texas Public Policy Foundation, uh, given that Texas has uh, much of uh, and most of the southern border with, uh, with Mexico, is working to uh, bring groups together like-minded uh, individuals and groups in a border security coalition to put forward ideas and especially research from the Texas Public Policy Foundation that will move us to a secure border. Uh, we have recently addressed the issue of asylum in, in research. John Dav uh, Daniel Davidson has published a few papers uh, on asylum, given that asylum is a significant draw these days. Uh, in, in my previous life uh, on Capitol Hill as a member of the United States House of Representatives, I served as chairman of the Subcommittee on Immigration, Border Security, and Claims. So if you think of that title, Immigration, Border Security, and Claims, you, you understand that border security and immigration, while they are related, are not necessarily uh, identically the same thing. And th so the desire is uh, from our foundation and from States Trust to begin to address the issue of border security uh, singularly because border security has to be the first uh, step in reforming our immigration system at large. If you don't have a secure border, if you don't know who's coming in and you don't know why they're coming in, then everything that you do on the interior to reform our immigration policy uh, generally will be for naught. And so it's important that we secure the border and we have uh, put a coalition together to, to forward that. And as I mentioned earlier, we have done uh, policy research on asylum as it is as it is the the main draw. When I was chairman of the subcommittee, the the magnet you might say we we talk about magnets into the United States. The magnet was the jobs magnet. Individuals were coming here for uh, to, for their economic benefit, for theirs uh, and for their family. And so uh, we were addressing those issues. And so as a result of that. Uh, Congress instituted a program called E-Verify to uh, allow employers to determine uh, uh, if individual applicants for employment uh, were in the country legally. And so we dealt with that, that issue of, of jobs and the jobs magnet. Well, today the, the uh, magnet at the border has evolved from a jobs magnet uh, as as it's related to Customs and Border Patrol agents. We'll get a little bit later into what's actually happening. But um, individuals are coming to the border and they're being coached to find someone along the border uh, in a green uniform and make a claim for asylum because once they know that once uh, they, they get on American soil, they can make that uh, claim for asylum. And uh, if they pass a particular interview, they are then potentially released into the interior after 150 days in the interior, they can, uh, they can apply for a, a permit to be employed in the United States, and then after uh, an additional 30 days, they can uh, receive that, that benefit and be employed in the United States. And so we have the magnet today that is asylum. And so asylum policy has to be reformed 
uh, TPPF has, has uh, introduced research in this area because, the, uh, as John Daniel Davidson, the author of this research, points out, that the crisis on the border is an asylum crisis. And until, we, uh, until Congress and the president work together to cha- change asylum laws in the country, then, uh, then this magnet will continue to draw individuals. Now, the president, the, the administration is working hard uh, in, within the context of the laws that already exist with the Remain in Mexico uh, program, with the uh, asylum cooperation agreements that it's recently reached with uh, the Northern Triangle countries of Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador, as well as a favorable judicial review of the interim final rule. Uh, the administration has uh, been able to uh, reduce those numbers of apprehensions on the southern borders from over 140,000 that I mentioned, uh, well, I might not have mentioned in May, to a little over 50,000 in September. And so uh, the administration is having an effect on, on immigration, uh, excuse me, on migration, uh, illegally taking place along the border, but ultimately it's going to take uh, a joint effort of the Congress and the President stepping forward uh, to address this issue. Um, and, uh, and then finally, with regard to my remarks, uh, some most important research that's just been that's hot off the presses today is research that's been conducted uh, by Igor Mogolies of, of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, uh, recently, that is looks at the metrics and assesses the metrics that are used to determine various aspects of the border and border security. When we go on Capitol Hill, and, and even when I was there, uh, and we, we meet with members of Congress and their staff, and we talk about a, a secure border, there is significant support for securing a border. When you ask these same people what that looks like, then the questions start coming. And as a result of that, we need to be able to measure the activity on the border uh, to determine in a consensus fashion what constitutes a secure border. And once we have, once again, on a consensus basis, determined that the border is secure, then we can move on to further immigration reform generally uh, that affects every every one of us every day uh, on the interior. Thank you very much. Hi, I'm Hans von Spakovsky. I'm a senior legal fellow in the uh, Legal Center here at Heritage. And um, I'm going to talk to you about what states can do to actually assist the federal government uh, in enforcement of our immigration laws. But before I do that, I want to make two points. Um, The first is that, uh, and this is a very important point, and this point was actually made um, in the 1990s by Barbara Jordan. Barbara Jordan, former uh, congresswoman from Texas, in fact. Uh, I think she was the first African-American woman elected to the Texas state legislature and then went on to Congress. And in the 1990s, uh, I mean, she was a member of the Congressional Black Caucus. In the 1990s, Bill Clinton put her in charge of a commission on immigration reform. And one of the things she said there was, this is very important, was that those who say that um, Uh, enforcement of our laws against illegal immigration means that you are anti-immigrant. That is just not true. And in fact, she said, um, if we fail to enforce our laws against illegal immigration, she said, as she was afraid, it would lessen the support of the American people for legal immigration. Uh, We welcome legal immigration to this country. In fact, we are the most welcoming country in the world for legal immigration. We take in 1.1 million legal immigrants a year. That's more than any other country. Uh, The fact that uh, we believe in enforcement of our laws against illegal immigration does not mean we're anti-immigrant. It means we're in favor of what makes America a unique nation and the reason why so many people want to come here because we are a nation based on the rule of law. And that's why this issue is so important. Now, the size of the problem, if you look at official estimates from DHS, Department of Homeland Security, you know, the, the, the estimates range from, I think, 10.4 to about 12 million uh, in a paper that Cully Stimson and I have just published on this issue, what states can do. Um, we found one study uh, by some academics that estimated it could be as high as 17 to 22 million. So we're not exactly sure. 
Um, the one thing that is well settled in this area, and this is what uh, this is the language used by the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in 2012 in a case called Arizona v. U.S., is that the federal government has broad, undoubted power over the subject of immigration and the status of aliens. But, the court added, the pervasiveness of federal regulation does not diminish the importance of immigration policy to the states. Why? Because they are the ones that bear the many, quote, consequences of, of unlawful immigration. And what are those consequences? The consequences are huge from a fiscal standpoint and uh, from other effects, too. It's state and local governments that bear the cost of illegal immigration when it comes to uh, public education, health care, law enforcement, and other government services. So what can be done about this? Now, the red herring that, that is always put out is, well, this problem is just too large. Uh, we can't solve it. Uh, therefore, there's really nothing we can do about it because there are so many illegal aliens here. Well, what you have to realize is that the vast majority of individuals who are here illegally, and by the way, I'm going to use the term illegal alien because that is the correct legal terminology. That is the language that is used in federal immigration statutes. It's the language used by Supreme Court decisions also. Um, the vast majority of uh, people who are here illegally are here for economic reasons. Yes, there are small numbers of individuals who are here as refugees because they're seeking asylum, because they are uh, persecuted in their home countries, but the vast majority are here for economic reasons. If you don't believe that, take a look at the various studies that are out there about the number of remittances sent from the U.S. by aliens back to their native countries. That that income in places like Mexico is a major uh, uh, uplifting stability in their economies. So what can the states do about this? Uh, I was at a recent meeting of state uh, legislators, and they mistakenly believed that there's nothing they can do about it because of the fact that the federal government has exclusive authority over immigration. That's not true, however. States can act. Uh, in this area as long as what they're doing is not preempted by state law. And so uh, Cully and I wrote a paper recently on actual steps that the states can take, uh, all of which have been upheld by the courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, probably one of the most important things that they can do is in the area of employment. Because as I said, uh, the vast majority of these uh, aliens are here for employment reasons to earn income, to send back to their families in their native countries. And one of the things that Arizona did was they passed a statute that took the E-Verify system. E-Verify system, as you all probably know, is an electronic system that allows any employer in the country to almost immediately check on a prospective employee to ensure that they are either a U.S. citizen or they're a non-citizen who's here legally and has a work permit. Uh, and that E-Verify system, the federal system, is voluntary. It's a good system to use. It's extremely accurate, uh, according to the U.S. Supreme Court. And what, uh, but it's voluntary. And what Arizona did was they passed a statute that said all employers in Arizona, all businesses, have to use the E-Verify system. If they used it and it turned out they had mistakenly hired uh, an illegal alien, they were grandfathered in and protected because they had used the E-Verify system. But... Uh, if they knowingly hire an illegal alien, the law set up a system where the business license could be suspended or even terminated. Uh, anyone in the economic world knows that uh, losing your business license is the death knell for a business or an employer or a corporation. And this, a lawsuit challenging this, went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court and in a decision uh, called uh, Chamber of Commerce versus Whiting, the Supreme Court said, no, this is within the power of the states to do. It is not preempted by uh, federal law. Uh, in another important provision, uh, and this has to do with the black market that exists uh, for illegal aliens in this country, uh, Arizona passed a law trying to uh, cut down on the day labor situation. 
Uh, I actually pass a site like that on my way to work from Virginia every day. It's a particular area where uh, men who are looking for uh, work uh, on the black market, you know, cash, no reporting or anything like that, uh, stand on the corner waiting for contractors and others to pick them up. Arizona passed a law that made it a state law crime for the occupant of a motor vehicle that is stopped on a street to attempt to hire or hire and pick up passengers for work at a different location if the motor vehicle blocks or impedes the normal movement of traffic. Now, you'll notice the aliens are not mentioned there at all. And this is clearly tied into making sure that you don't have problems on the streets that are going to cause an accident. That provision was upheld in court cases. And what a lot of people don't understand, because the media really misreported this, is you all may recall that during the Obama administration, Arizona passed a statute, uh, including a provision that said that if state or local law enforcement officials stop, detained, or arrested an individual for violation of a state or local law, if they had a reasonable suspicion that the individual was uh, here illegally, uh, they needed. They had a check with the federal government over that. Uh, the Obama administration's Justice Department sued over that provision. It went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, along with several other provisions of the law. And a lot of people mistakenly believe that Arizona lost that case. No, there were almost a dozen provisions in that Arizona law. Only four of them were actually appealed. All the other provisions remained in place, were not thrown out by the courts. Uh, Three of the provisions were tossed out by the Supreme Court, but the, the one provision that was upheld was that provision, which allows state and local law enforcement to check your immigration status uh, when you are arrested. That's an important provision because the help of the state governments is, is vital uh, in this area. Uh, the other problem that we have, of course, are sanctuary cities, cities that are trying to obstruct enforcement of federal immigration laws. Um, Arizona passed a statute, so did Texas, both of which have been upheld in the courts, in which the state governments have prohibited state and local governments from passing provisions that, for example, um, uh, tell local law enforcement to defy uh, detainer warrants issued on illegal aliens who've been arrested in local jails or forbid local law enforcement from notifying or exchanging information with the federal government on the immigration status of anyone that they have arrested or detained. Uh, those provisions were upheld, and in fact, federal immigration law prohibits any state or local government from putting in a provision that prohibits the exchange of information on uh, illegal aliens. Um, this is very important because of the fact that ICE has about 20,000 uh, law enforcement and support personnel compared to a million state and local law enforcement personnel across the country. And they need the help of locals uh, to find illegal aliens, particularly those who have been arrested for committing local crimes. And that's the odd thing about this. Look, sanctuary policies create sanctuaries for criminals. Because what local communities are saying is that we think it's a better idea if we have arrested an illegal alien for committing a local crime, robbery, assault, burglary, we think it's a better idea that once they've served their sentence that we return them to the local community where they can commit more crime. That's better for our, the safety of our local residents than calling up the federal government so they can be picked up and deported. It makes no sense. And if you want to know how much this makes no sense, I would suggest to you that you uh, take a look at a recent report put out by the Department of Homeland Security. It's about uh, criminal aliens who were arrested by local authorities in Oregon and Washington State. Detainer warrants were sent to the law enforcement officials. Those individuals, however, were released instead of uh, held so that DHS could come and get them. And this report goes through and names all of these uh, criminal illegal aliens who were released despite detainer warrants and the, who then, when they got out, committed more crimes, including murder, rape, and assault. None of those crimes would have happened if those jurisdictions did not have sanctuary policies uh, in place. 
By the way, Arizona passed a provision as part of this law, again, upheld in the courts, that gave residents of the state the ability to file a private right of action against any local city or county that puts in a sanctuary policy or otherwise violates federal law, which is a, uh, a great idea. Um, the other thing I'll mention and then go on, although there's a lot more, is, uh, look, it's very easy to drive a car for quite a while without a driver's license, uh, and nobody's going to find out about it unless you go too fast or do something else that a cop notices and stops you. So it's very easy for someone who's here illegally uh, to get away with uh, driving a car. Uh, transportation obviously is vital to maintaining jobs and things like that. Uh, Alabama passed a statute, which again has been upheld in the courts, that barred uh, someone from getting license plates for their car unless they can show that they are a U.S. citizen or a citizen here legally. Uh, you may be able to get away for a long time driving a car without a driver's license, but you're not going to be able to do that without a license plate on your car. So that's another provision that can be used to make it economically unviable for an illegal alien to uh, stay in your country, uh, stay in your state. Um, I will end by emphasizing what I emphasized at the beginning. The fact that we want to enforce our laws against illegal immigration does not make us anti-immigrant. I'm a son of immigrants. My parents met in a refugee camp in Europe at the end of World War II, but they came here legally like millions of other people before them, and as millions will do this year and in the years to come. And the fact that we don't believe in open borders or that we believe in enforcement of our immigration laws does not make us anti-immigrant. In fact, I think it makes us pro-immigration because all of the time and resources that are spent on trying to uh, prevent illegal aliens from coming in takes away from the ability of DHS to process the applications of legal immigrants, the people who are willing to stand in line, obey our rules and our laws uh, in order to come to this country. Thanks. system in our country, uh, not only the legal, but also what you do with the illegal aliens. Uh, one thing was bugging me as I was writing the draft, uh, and I sort of hearkened back to my days as a former judge uh, and my days as a prosecutor at the federal and state level, and, and, and it, it, what bugged me was this. Why, why are our immigration courts so backlogged? Why do they have a million, over a million cases on the docket just waiting? That makes no sense. There's no such court in this country. Uh, and so I started to look under the hood uh, after we got our big special report published to look at, you know, what did I have as a judge? What tools did I have as a judge and what federal and state court judges what tools do they have that immigration judges lack? They have to lack something because they can't be incompetent boobs. They've got to be able to process cases like any other judge. Uh, and it turns out they do lack uh, three common sense tools. Um, and Congress actually figured out one of them 22 years ago when they passed a law that gave immigration judges contempt authority. But what they did is... They said, quote in the statute, the immigration judge shall have the authority under regulations prescribed by the attorney general to sanction by civil money penalty any action or inaction in, of, in contempt of the judge's prior, proper exercise of authority under uh, this chapter. So here Congress 22 years ago says, 
you can have the same tool as all Article Three federal judges and state court judges have. Attorney General, just write the regulation. No attorney general has done it in Democrat or Republican administrations. The other two tools, and I'm going to give you examples of how this has created this constipated court system that has over a million cases. And look, in our pro-immigrant paper, our pro-immigration policy says that if you have a viable asylum claim, come to America. Our courts will treat you with dignity and respect like all of our forefathers came to America, forefathers and foremothers, legally. And in that court system, your case will get the due process and the respect it deserves. What happens today? Those cases get bundled in with all these worthless, meritless cases. And do you know what? The other two tools that immigration judges don't have are, in the federal rules, it's called 12B6 authority or summary judgment authority or a judgment on the pleadings. Now, that sounds like lawyer mumbo-jumbo. Let me say it in English so you can understand how it actually works, okay? Let's say this lady who comes to a lot of heritage lectures and sits in the front row and smiles and asks really good questions in the end. You're from country X, and you say uh, – to Judge Von Spakovsky, I don't want to give him a big head, but Judge Von Spakovsky is immigration judge. I want to get asylum in your country because people in my country persecute me because I wear glasses on my head, and I'm a protected class. Now, that has no merit. That doesn't fall under the statute that the Congress passed many years ago. But in immigration court today, that case would take a minimum of three, two, 728 days from the time it's filed to the time it's ultimately dismissed. And it gets lumped in with the cases of real persecuted people, people who have viable asylum claims. The judge, Judge Von Spakovsky or any other judge, cannot say, you know what, based on the pleadings alone, ma'am, we dismiss your case early on. Or you litigate it for a little while, and under the summary judgment rule that all federal and state judges have, I'm sorry, but I'm going to rule for the government. I'm sorry you feel that way about your glasses, but your case is, is dismissed. Now, there's not much more merit to those meritless cases than that, except it's that they want to come here for economic reasons. Everyone in this room, everyone at Heritage, Everyone at our liberal counterpart think tanks understand why people come here. They come here for jobs. We get that. But there's another way, and it's the legal way. Here's the problem. Let me give an example of how immigration judges have no authority to manage their case dockets and why they can't do anything about your case and have to treat your case the same as any other case. <clears throat> The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, the biggest section in the country, all on the West Coast, issued an opinion called Dent Against Holder back in 2010. Every illegal immigrant, illegal alien in this country has an A file. It's a file. It just happens to be titled A. And within the A file, there's a specific form called the I-213. And the I-213 is a summary of all the removals, voluntary and involuntary, contacts with law enforcement, things they've said to uh, ICE officials, criminal convictions, et cetera. It's essentially their rap sheet, okay? But in the Ninth Circuit, when the defense asks for the A file and the I-213, the government officials say, nah, we don't read Dent the way you do. Now, the Dent decision says, you got to turn it over to the defense. Turn it over. And the judge says, counsel, representing the government, turn it over to the defense. And the government lawyer says, we don't read Dent that way, Your Honor. And the judge says, well, Dent's pretty clear. Turn it over, counsel. And the government counsel, with a smile on her face, says, we don't read it that way, Your Honor. The judge can't do anything about it. What would happen to Stimson? when I was a federal prosecutor, a state prosecutor, and I told the judge to pound sand like that. I'd get in trouble. 
I'd be held in contempt. Well, first I get my finger wagged at. I get my, the judge wag her finger at me. Then eventually, if I kept putting, doing that, the judge would hold me in contempt. And when counsel appeared before me in military court, and I was a military trial judge, if they pulled that stuff with me, they wouldn't get away with it very long because no judge is going to put up with that. But immigration judges have to put up with it all the time. So the worst the immigration judge can do is say, well, government, then you're not going to be allowed to cross-examine the criminal alien, the illegal alien, excuse me, uh, on stuff in the 213. And you know what the government counsel says? Well, we're not going to tell you where we're getting the information that we're cross-examining him from. It may be from the 213. It may be from somewhere else. And the judge says, well, I'm not going to take it under consideration. And the counsel for the government says, well, too bad. That leaves the judge in a hopeless situation. Let's focus on the other side of the equation. Judges routinely issue scheduling orders. All counsel, in this case, will file all pretrial motions no more than 30 days before the trial. That makes sense. You get it, so there's no surprises. Trial continues a few times, and finally they get to the big day of trial. On the day of trial, the, criminal, the illegal alien's lawyer drops 20, 30, 60, 200, 300 pages of discovery on the court and the, prosecute, the, the government counsel. And the judge says, well, counsel, there was a scheduling order. It was due 30 days ago. The government counsel is jumping up and down. This is not fair, Your Honor. And the judge is like, yeah, that's not fair. What, what do you want? I mean, I'm not going to consider this counsel. It's late. So I'll attach it to the record but I won't consider for purposes of my ruling. The illegal alien loses her case. The case gets appealed to the Board of Immigration Appeals. The Board of Immigration Appeals looks at that extra 200 pages that the judge didn't consider and goes, oh, wow, there's really something to that. So uh, we're going to find good cause, and we're going to remand the case back to the immigration courts. And it takes a few hundred more days to wind its way through the system. And maybe there is no merit to that, or maybe there is merit. And so these judges have no ability to hold people in contempt. They don't have the ability to hold their feet to the fire. They don't have the ability to enforce their orders. They don't have the removal authority. They don't have that at all. Now, the criticism from some uh, is you don't want to give these judges more power. They're not really judges. They're just administrative judges within the executive branch. That's true. And you don't want to give them the trappings of judicial grandeur. Well, guess what? They wear robes. They handle cases. They're supposed to give, give out due process. And what are you going to do? Not give them anything? And so unless and until the administration, this or any administration, issues a contempt order and gives these judges contempt power, and unless they give them the ability to dispose of these cases either through summary judgment approval authority or on the pleadings, this caseload is going to grow and grow and grow and grow. And by the way, based on a survey of the circuit court judges, these are the head honchos around the country who manage all these big dockets, 30 to 50 percent of the docket would go away. Let me repeat that. Half of the docket or more would go away if these judges had these tools of summary judgment authority and judgment on the pleadings. And that's just getting out the underbrush from behind. Going forward, it would be many more because the word would get out, you might as well not file meritless pleadings because the judges will have the ability to cut them off in the very beginning. So this isn't a conservative or a liberal thing. This isn't a right or left thing. This isn't a blue or red thing. This is a common sense thing that all federal and state court judges have in blue and red states and purple states and whatever other color you want to pick, um, but they don't have them. And so we're not going to hire our way out of fixing this problem. You're not going to you, – you plop 500 more immigration judges in courts around the country, and the caseload is just going to continue to grow. You can't hire your way out of this. You've got to fix fundamentally the lack of judicial resources and tools that the rest of the – robed judiciary has. And with that, uh, I don't know if any of you want to uh, pose a question to any of us. Otherwise, we should probably open it up to our colleagues. I, I just want to emphasize how important what Cully is saying. Because look, if, if and, and how we're giving, giving people who are here illegally more rights than ordinary citizens. Look, if I, if I go to a state court and I file a totally frivolous claim, 
the, the judge can look at it and say, look, even if everything you're saying is true, you don't have a case under the law. He can throw it out. And that prevents whoever I'm suing with a frivolous case from having to hire lawyers, going to the cost of defending the case, and it acts as a deterrent to people filing frivolous cases. There is no such deterrent in the immigration courts. Immigra immigration lawyers know that even if they have a client who has absolutely no legitimate claim whatsoever to be in the United States, they can delay his or her departure from the United States for years by filing a claim in an immigration court. Um, and the judge, even if the judge knows this is a meritless claim, can't just dismiss it. There's going to have to be a trial. Not only that, but if the, because there's no contempt authority, if the judge sets a trial date, and on the trial date, the lawyer comes in and says, well, my, my client isn't here, I'm not busy, he can't hold the lawyer in contempt for that. So they can't have an orderly process in the courts. And it just makes no sense to not give these immigration judges the same authority that state and federal, all state and federal judges have. I mean, this is, this is such an important issue, and particularly because of what Cully said, or based on this survey, that a huge portion of the immigration case backlog would disappear because there are so many frivolous cases there. And those frivolous cases prevent judges from hearing real cases real cases where somebody really is a refugee and really needs a asylum and consideration of their case is going to be uh, delayed because of all these meritless cases that are sitting in the in the court. So I, I just want to reemphasize that because it's just it's really, really important. One of the uh, pushbacks from our well-meaning friends in the conservative movement <clears throat> about giving judges contempt authority, which, by the way, Congress mandated, uh, in statute, uh, is that, well, back when the statute was passed, it was actually ICE and that was in the department. Now it's DHS, there's a new department, and you can't have one side of the executive branch enforcing a civil money fine against another side of the executive branch. I just disagree with that. The Congress said do it, uh, so you should do it. But even if you cannot, if you buy into that, I don't, if you buy into that, um, you can certainly apply the civil money fines to uh, the lawyers for the legal alien, and you can sanction the government lawyers. You can pull her off the case. You can reprimand her and recommend a reprimand to her boss if she's repeatedly violating court orders. You can write her state bar. Uh, this happens all the time, by the way, in the JAG Corps, uh, where I served for 25 years in the Navy. Uh, we don't have military judges fining lawyers who commit misconduct, which rarely happens, by the way, but you have them finger-wagging, uh, then talking to their boss, uh, and then if it's a real ethical lapse, then the ethics branch of the particular branch of the Judge Advocate General Corps will then write the state bar of that errant uh, lieutenant or captain who uh, commits misconduct before the court. So there are a lot of creative solutions. Uh, I know that some of my colleagues in the conservative world say, well, you don't want to give these non-judges more trappings of judicial supremacy. Um, they already have it. And so if you give them the tool to dispose of meritless cases and they don't use it, you're, no, you're in no worse situation than you're already in now. But if they start using it and you hire good people who will enforce the law as written, well, then I think you're a long way to starting to trim back uh, this uh, bloated bureaucracy uh, of constipated cases on a docket that's ever-growing. So we're going to open it up for questions. Um, and uh, as Dr. Carafano said, uh, if you could just stand by, uh, wait for a microphone, uh, introduce yourselves to us, and then ask a question with a question mark at the end, that'd be great. And add... Uh, who, I'm going to give you, since I used you as a prop, the first question. <clears throat> One word. I'm, I'm a journalist, by the way. I'm, I'm with the Hispanic Outlook and written a couple of books on immigration. My question, with a big question mark, why? Why is there this attitude, apparently there's no political will to change this 
regarding immigration judges. And why do you think that is? It seems to me that there's a real feeling that even deportation is a crime against humanity somehow. But I wonder if you have reflected on this and how we can approach that. But anyway, why? Well, uh, I, I, I have no um, research that backs up this answer. I have a, about a quarter century of life experience in my gut. So with that caveat, there's my answer. My answer is that, first off, there's a lot of good judges who are immigration judges. A lot of them are men and women who came out of the military or other um, uh, judicial roles, and they do a fine job. Um, but again, they don't have the tools that they used to have uh, before. Um, I don't know why there's not the political will to do it. I think on immigration judges um, are administrative law judges. Uh, they uh, are not Article Three judges. They're not confirmed by the United States Senate. They're within the they're housed within DHS. Um, they're part of the executive branch, and so. Um, these are supposed to be no rules of evidence apply, quick hearings based on the pleadings and very little uh, trial-like procedures. And over the years, like kudzu, they just grow and grow and grow and grow. And now they have swearing-in ceremonies uh, and all the judicial trappings of judges, uh, robes, courtrooms. Uh, now, whether you agree or disagree with that, I'm just telling you the way it is, all right? The attorney general hires the IJs, the immigration judges. So it's not like today in a federal district court where the president nominates the Senate under their uh, advice and consent uh, power, decides whether or not to give them a hearing and, con and confirm them, and then the president appoints them. There's none of that. There's, they don't run for office like in some state courts where they have state court judges. These are just employees of the Justice Department who get hired by the Attorney General and plopped into immigration court after some good training uh, that they get. And so uh, when, when uh, you have a liberal president uh, and you hire people into an administration, you're going to get certain type of people. When you have a conservative as a president, you're going to get other types of people into an administration. Um, there's, a, there's a process that is supposed to be somewhat apolitical. Uh, but the immigration courts have always been politicized. Uh, and so there are, there, are, there are reform proposals out there, by the way, like from the American Bar Association that say that the immigration court should actually be made part of Article I, like the tax court. Uh, there are other proposals out there, reform proposals to make them Article III judges or things <coughs> like that, excuse me. So, um, but I didn't want to focus on the big, almost insurmountable moving parts because Getting Congress to do much uh, is a big ask. I'm talking about what the executive branch can do today to give them the tools that all their brothers and sisters in robes in state and federal courts have. Uh, but, you know, the pushback from our friends um, who, who tend to be strict constructionists, uh, uh, which we all are, um, is that you don't want to give them even more power. And my pushback is I'm not convinced of that because they already have the power to, to do the right thing. And if they don't use the summary judgment authority, they don't use the motion on the judgment on the pleadings, so what? You're not in a worse situation than you are now. And if you hire the right people, they're going to take a case based on the facts. And if they have some merit, they stay, they litigate it. If they have no merit, the case goes away. Um, Let's go to this gentleman, and then here, and then here. Uh, thank you. Uh, my name is Mitsuo Nakai, uh, Japan native and U.S. citizen. Uh, I have two questions. Uh, number one, I understand we have 11 to 12 million people that, that, that are been here in this country illegally. So I wonder, does it, what does it mean? It, it probably means that they have the social security number. Most of them, most of them maybe. So it means social security system has to be fixed. Am I correct or not correct? I mean, that's number one. Number two, the wall 
had to be built a long time ago. I mean, President Reagan uh, sent some illegals back, and so did uh, George H.W. and Clinton and so forth. But the wall was never built. And, and yet they kept saying, without the wall, we're not a nation. Well, what does that mean? So that, that's my problem here. Well, the, the administration is in the process of building a significant amount of barrier across the southern border. Um, it's doing it in an intelligent way in areas that are uh, known high traffic areas. Much of the uh, southern border is uh, almost completely impassable, and so there wouldn't be much logic in putting a barrier there. And the administration is also replacing old barrier or a less effective barrier across uh, across the southern border, which will uh, benefit uh, the security on the border as well. Uh, that being said, there are other policy uh, issues that have to be maintained because regardless of where you put a barrier, that barrier, none of it can be constructed on Mexican soil. And so there's going to be an offset. I, I apologize, I don't know ex uh, exactly what those offsets are in the various areas. But whether it's 10 feet, 50 feet, 100 yards, whatever it is, there will be an offset for that barrier. And asylum law is such that once you step foot on U.S. soil, so if you think, uh, if you can see in your mind's eye between the actual physical border of the United States and, and Mexico, uh, uh, the river and, and where the wall is, for example, uh, once a person steps foot, they can make a claim uh, for asylum. And so asylum is going to continue to be the magnet with or without a wall. With or without a wall where there is a wall that you can see just due north of you or a wall made somewhere else uh, more passable. And so while the wall will be a benefit, it will not be an uh, end-all, be-all if, if we continue to allow asylum to be abused uh, by so many people that are coming to the United States uh, uh, as was mentioned earlier, actually for the express purpose in many cases where they have uh, spoken to reporters and correspondents and said, well, we're not going to be able to make it here under an asylum claim. We actually just came here for a better job. And so uh, the, 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 the wall is part of the solution, but it's not all of the solution. And the first question was... With On the Social, social Security. security. Yeah. yeah, so um, let me just briefly touch on the Social Security question. So there was a program in addition to E-Verify uh, prior to the Obama administration called the Social Security No-Match System. E-Verify is the front end. You apply to a company, you give them your Social Security number, they type it in, the HR person types it in right then, boom, Stimson, you're a citizen, you can work. Boom, you're in. That's the front end check. Social Security no match is, of course, employers take Social Security money from you out of your paycheck, right? You notice that every two weeks. And then they send stuff into the government. And then the government, through the, you can use their computer systems to check whether the Social Security money set aside for you under the number you provided your employer matches the Social Security number that they have for you in their system. And if there's not a match, periodically they'll send a letter back to the employer and say, hey, uh, these nine people that you employ, sir, uh, don't have a matching Social Security number. Can you talk to them? So they bring them into HR, and in most instances, the person just wrote the wrong number down, like they transposed a couple numbers. You know, we are all human. We make mistakes. We all make them. Uh, in some instances, they stole it, right? And so the mechanism is that if you can't figure it out right there at your employer, then you can have a number of days to go down to the local Social Security office and sort it out. Uh, and oftentimes those get sorted out because you do have legal authorization to work here or you're a citizen. But the few that don't, don't show up in the Social Security Administration office. They just go somewhere else and voluntarily depart that particular employer. So it catches people on the back end. Well, the Obama administration stopped that program. Why? I think because it worked too well. 
Of course, they said that it was because the Social Security system isn't perfect and the numbers get mixed up, but they relied on the same thing for Obamacare. Some people That's right. That's right. And, and you're going to have people who engage in that type of transaction, who engage in fraud, who can beat the system. They can steal a Social Security number and a name and a date of birth and do that. So there's no foolproof system. But understand that the Trump administration figured out the little card game that was being played here, and they're rolling the Social Security, system, Social Security no-match system back into place so that they have the back-end system and E-Verify. And I just want to make a point about the asylum provision, uh, which was mentioned, and, and it's this. Um, look, our, our law should be that you can't claim asylum unless you come in through a port of entry. Because if you have a valid asylum claim, because you're really being politically persecuted in your home country, uh, why would you pay a smuggler to smuggle you across the border? You would go to a port of entry where you can uh, legitimately uh, claim asylum. You don't have to pay anybody to try to illegally smuggle you into the country. And in fact, the latest data from DHS shows that nine out of every 10 asylum claims are fraudulent. And the, one of the reasons for that is that because the, the coyotes who work for the Mexican drug cartels, and the estimate is they make upwards of $2 billion a year being paid by folks to smuggle them across the border. They're telling aliens that you get <laughs> caught the moment you're in claim asylum. So the, the rule should be you can only claim asylum at ports of entry. But, but second, um, <laughs> you know, liberals are always pointing to the European Union, right? We should, we should follow what the EU does. They, they know how to do everything well. Well, when it comes to asylum law, we should do exactly what the EU says, which is uh, if you want to claim asylum um, in Europe, you have to claim asylum at the first EU country you get to. You cannot get to the shores of Spain or, uh, I'm sorry, Italy, uh, and not claim asylum until you travel through to Germany because you think that's going to be a better place. Because if you have a valid asylum law, uh, asylum claim, obviously you're going to want to claim asylum at the first country you, you get to that has an asylum law. Um, and that should be our rule, too, particularly because, look, Mexico, Mexico actually has an asylum law. It's been in place, I think, since 2011. It actually has broader provisions than the American asylum law. So if you are coming from a, if you're coming across the Mexican-American border, and you are not Mexican, you're from a, another country, and you did not claim asylum in Mexico, that's evidence that you don't have a valid asylum claim. And that ought to be what our rule is uh, uh, anywhere uh, for, for people coming across our, our border. Sir. Uh, yes, I'm Russell King, retired federal employee. Um, well, I was in Baltimore and got stuck in a traffic jam. And the reason I was stuck in a traffic jam is there was a soccer game and uh, people were either giving away or selling Salvadoran flags to the motorists going by. And I was wondering if, if what you had said about, um, about the day laborers, regulations on them, if there could be regulations on any kind of solicitation of anything, giving away, uh, begging, asking for money or selling something, is there a problem with that, and, and specifically as, as it applies to the immigrants? And uh, it's, is there a solution to that? Um, I suppose it would be a general solution, because I know we have firefighters giving, you know, passing the boot around and beggars and all that, stopping cars. But is there any good solution to that? Well, as a huge soccer fan, I, uh, I'm offended they weren't giving away American flags because they were playing the American team, right? Well, yeah. I mean, look, uh, kidding aside... Um, uh, that, that doesn't offend me, personally. I, 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 I take it, Mr. King, it offends you. Um, this, the state of Maryland can pass uh, vehicle laws, much like Arizona did that we mentioned earlier, Hans mentioned in the, in the paper that we wrote together. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I think, you know, giving away flags, uh, you know, I... Uh, you know, if they're blocking traffic, they're blocking traffic. I mean, I used to be a Maryland prosecutor. I guess, you know, impeding traffic um, is, is, is a misdemeanor or at least a, a violation of a vehicle code uh, in Maryland, uh, and they could enforce that. But I suspect in the spontaneity and happiness and 
fun of sporting events and that sort of thing. Um, they're not going to do that just like they wouldn't if they were handing out Ravens flags or or Baltimore Oriole flags or anything like that. But yeah, they they have, they have the vehicle code uh, in Maryland. They could enforce the vehicle code if they're impeding uh, the free flow of traffic in a, on a thoroughfare. Okay, but what they should be concentrating on is illegal behavior. And by that I mean, uh, you know, there's a huge industry here uh, selling stolen Social Security numbers, selling fake uh, green cards, et cetera. And, and in fact, uh, there's a case, but about to be heard before the Supreme Court, um, in which the state of Kansas is trying to prosecute someone for a, a, a stolen Social Security number. And the Kansas um, Supreme Court issued this really foolish decision saying that um, Kansas couldn't prosecute them because that, full, that false Social Security number was used on the I-9 form. The I-9 form is the form that employers, it's a federal form that employers have to fill out where they certify that they've checked your ID and your citizenship status to, to make sure you have a work. It's a, it's a, hopefully the Supreme Court is going to overturn it unanimously because it's a bad decision. But if that decision went forward, it would handicap prosecutors all over the country from being, go, go, being able to go after identity theft. And, and the theft of Social Security numbers, which is a huge problem in, in the United States. And on that, I just, uh, just want to say one more thing about that. In the lexicon of this whole debate, uh, when we're confronted with the idea of undocumented aliens or undocumented immigrants, uh, I can tell you that, that those are almost virtually uh, uh, non-existent because there is a tremendous uh, industry for false documents. And so the vast majority of migrants that are here are not undocumented. They have false passports. They have false birth certificates. They have false driver's license. They have fraudulent uh, uh, social security numbers. They are documented. It's just that that documentation is fraudulent in nature. I think we have time for one more. And I think I promised this gentleman. Yes. Hi, uh, Pat Spann, another federal refugee. The, um, I um, know there's a high percentage of people that, after they've let loose, never show up for their hearings. I wonder if you guys know the numbers. But also, is there any interest, or is it maybe a current law, that says that um, if you don't show up, that qualifies you for a quick deportation? Is, is, it, just, is it just because it's not politically correct or they're I mean it seems to me that if you don't show up for your uh, scheduled hearing that should qualify you for you ever did, do get caught to be kicked out period well of course if you if you don't show up in a article 3 court or a state court uh, or if you if you were here in the district of columbia where i used to be a federal prosecutor uh, the judge would issue a failure to appear notice there'd be a warrant for your arrest uh, and when you got nabbed, you'd get yanked back. You'd get screamed at by the judge. Uh, the, the prosecution would file a failure to appear charge on top of all your other stuff, and it would make life worse. Of course, immigration judges, as you know, have no teeth. Uh, and so um, not only do they have no teeth, but when they say, okay, Mr. King, uh, you're ordered removed, they don't hook you up in handcuffs and send you out of the courtroom with the bailiff uh, and remove you. They say, now, okay, uh, come back in X number of months uh, so that we can report to XYZ so you can be removed. And, of course, they don't. Uh, and so, Hans, you may, or, or John, you may be familiar well, with the numbers. Well, the one thing I'll tell you about that is I, I have a good friend who's a former federal immigration judge, and he's done a lot of analysis uh, of this. And I forget the exact number, but, look, one of the reasons that the uh, Trump administration wanted to end the catch-and-release policy is because of the fact that uh, I think he saw, it depends on how far back you go, but the failure to appear rate is something like 40%. If you can believe that, there, there's no state or federal court that has anything like that. So in other words, the, the best things that, that someone who's here illegally can do if, if they get caught uh, by uh, ICE is, you know, ICE doesn't have the detention space to keep them. So what happens? They get processed. They're given a date to appear 
before an immigration judge, and then they disappear into the anonymity of this very large country that we have, why would they show up for a hearing when they know they don't actually have a legal right to be in the country? And that's why the failure to appear rate is very, very large. And there's, like I said, there's no state or federal court that, that comes anywhere close to having that kind of failure to appear rate. And that, once again, shows you that what Cully is talking about, the lack of power of immigration judges to enforce their orders is a key failure of our immigration court system. John, any last comments? Well, I just want to thank yeah. uh, Heritage Foundation <clears throat> for your hospitality and hosting the Texas Public Policy Foundation in this very discussion of this very important issue. Thank you. Well, please join me in thanking our panel.